Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, the show for business owners looking to acquire, scale, or exit a business. Before we get on with today's program, we just wanted to let you know that the Buy, Grow, Sell team have been working really hard to come up with more resources that add more value to your journey. This includes a range of webinars, tools, and other events, including an online summit where we get some of the industry's leading experts to come and share their insights. If you'd like to know more, go to buygrowsell.com forward slash events. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome back to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. My next guest is an entrepreneur who spent decades building successful SaaS businesses and has come out the other side with a wealth of insight on building value, timing exits, and navigating some of the riskier components of acquisitions. Alexander Rink is a CEO, board director, and tech executive who's here to talk to us about the sale of his company 360PI back in 2017. When he came on as CEO, Alex was able to scale the business into a multi-million dollar company with 90% annual recurring revenue retention rates, which for most people in that space know is a pretty good number. He speaks in length about the highs and lows of acquisitions, including everything from how to figure out when is the right time to go to market, right on to sharing tips about how to safeguard your company's interests when it comes to due diligence. There are a lot of great points to unpack in this episode, so I hope you enjoy it. This is Alex Rink. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Hi, Simon. A pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. No, my pleasure indeed. It's, um, you know, I'm really excited to chat about your story. I think there's, there's a couple of really interesting things in your background that I know our audience is going to get a lot of value from. Um, before I get started, though, I, I have to just laugh. Anyone who's listening to this on the podcast won't be looking at the video, but um, when Alex jumped on the call here, I noticed that he had a, uh, a, an amazing haircut that sort of looked a lot like mine and we both happened to be wearing black shirts. So it's good to see that we managed to get our matching on here, Alex, before we, uh, we kicked off. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did add that you were much better looking than I was, Simon. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. For, for modesty. <laughs> Well, I, I think you're being too flattering here. I don't, don't necessarily agree with that. So anyway, um, Alex, I, I know we're going to get into, um, you know, particularly your company, um, 360PI that, that you sold, but can, maybe we could just, just go back to kind of an earlier stage. You know, maybe you could kick off, give us a little bit of your background, what led you to getting involved in that business? And uh, yeah, we can, we can start there perhaps. Uh, without making this too long, I think it is important to start with the point that my father was an entrepreneur and his father was an entrepreneur. And so I grew up with a sense that entrepreneurship was not only an option, but maybe even the role model for me. And I think I ended up taking a different tack. My father is a, I live in Ottawa, Canada. My father's from Denmark and he studied uh, the trade essentially of ship channeling and which is supplying ships when they come into port didn't go to university very bright man but self-educated didn't go to university learned this trade i ended up going down the path a more conservative path of going to university looking for jobs and and that kind of thing 
But I always had this inclination that I was going to be an entrepreneur. And there were some things that I did when I was a teenager, like buying certain things and then selling them in the neighborhood and, and so on, paper route, you know, et cetera. Uh, but the early stage of my career was more about doing something, working at companies, making money, et cetera. Um, until a certain point where I, I had actually tried some entrepreneurial ventures that, that hadn't worked. I was traveling and, and trying some things, but at a certain point I just said, look, I got to settle down. I've got to bring in an income, ended up doing an MBA, worked at a management consulting firm, but left there after two and a half years, started up my first company in 2000. And since that time, it's been three different businesses, some successes, some not, not so successes in every case, a lot of education around entrepreneurship along the way. Uh, just learning about how to bootstrap and how to be really, I, I did raise money on, by the way, at least on two of those three businesses. Uh, in one of the cases, I actually bought the business back from the VC and continued to operate it afterwards. So there's just a lot of learning around there. And it's always been a, a heavy focus on how do we get this company to be operationally efficient and well run so that it actually looks attractive to an acquirer. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I'm I'm curious about this. Um, you know, what kind of makes an entrepreneur? Right? And I've, I've had lots of guests on this show, and some come from very entrepreneurial families, and others are, are completely the opposite. And and you know, they've they've gone and sort of forged that path. Um, so I'm, I'm always fascinated with what sort of leads you to sort of people into this space. But I also relate to your story there about um, going into corporate and doing these other things. So qu question on the back of all that is, is how important do you think it is? You know, you, you're going down these your, your path, you're finding your way, you've obviously got a natural interest in entrepreneurship. How important is it to actually go out and work for other people, uh, work in other businesses, get that kind of exposure? Yeah, it's a good question, Simon. I think it depends on what you want your life to be like. Before I actually took, to fill in the detail, when I was at university, I had six co-op terms. So I was able to work at, at companies and make money while I was studying. And that is what enabled me to go to university. It's what enabled me to make the money that I needed to pay for university. And following university, I traveled and I had an opportunity to start a business. And that business would have been importing and wholesaling Guatemalan textiles. And I chose to travel some more and I was going to sell them in Portugal. My mother's Portuguese. I decided to go to Portugal. I wanted to travel and work internationally. I did have an opportunity to start up a business wholesaling those textiles in Portugal. I tried initially to wholesale them to retailers. And it was just a bridge too far for them. Here was this person from Canada, wasn't Portuguese, didn't speak Portuguese really with any level of, of fluency, bringing these, these wares, these goods, these textiles that are different than what is normal in Portugal and, and so on. So that avenue didn't work, but I could have started up a business buying a Volkswagen van selling the Guatemalan textiles to teenagers by the beach. And that would have been a great cash business. It would have done much better than a lot of these retail stores that I was trying to sell to. But I remember at the time thinking about it and, and saying, you know what, this would be entrepreneurial, 
but I don't know that this is the life that I want to be living. Don't get me wrong, it would have been a really interesting life. And, and for someone, it would have been an amazing life, but I just didn't think that it fit for me. And that was a point at which I switched tracks and said, let me actually leverage this university degree that I've got in electrical engineering and <laughs> put it to good use and make some progress in my career, get some money in the bank, get myself onto a more solid financial footing. I also felt like I wanted to learn more about business after having done engineering and did an MBA. So there was a period there where it was, to your point, a lot of filling in what I felt were gaps that would help me get to the kind of life that I saw for myself. I, I just love that. You know, I think regular listeners of this show know I'm a, I'm a big believer that we're not actually born to do business. You know, we're, you're born to live your life and really business should be a vehicle for delivering you the life you want. And so I, I just love that. You know, I think, you know, we go, we all go on this journey and I, and I actually think I, I see this, you know, and you've been involved with a lot of um, sort of earlier stage businesses as well, but I think there's a lot of people out there who are trying trying to find their purpose, trying to find their passion work that they can do. Um, you know, maybe they're thinking about being in business for themselves and they're working for others and making ends meet and doing all those sort of things. And, and I actually think that's quite a struggle for people to find what that passion is. And so I, I actually think, and, I, and I'm going to put myself in this category as well, um, sometimes it's actually easier to define what you don't want for your life than, than what you actually truly do want. And so it's, um, in fact, it's a little, probably a little bit of a in-house kind of joke almost with uh, most of the guys here at Exit Advisory Group in our core business because, you know, we, we all laugh that we're all corporate SKPs, right? Like we, we've all kind of done that and we're all trying to work out what we wanted, you know, and, and yeah, and literally, you know, just sometimes you've got to work in an environment to know what you don't want so that you can now start going and searching with a different set of parameters for what you do want. Yeah. I completely agree, Simon. It's really interesting, actually. There's a, a big parallel, I think, between the early stages of our career where we're trying a lot of different things and you figure out what you like and you do more of that and you figure out what you don't like and you try and do less of that and product market fit. When you're trying to find product market fit in an early stage company, and I literally, just before this call, was speaking with a startup company that I'm angel invested in and that I serve as an advisor with. And we were going over the product market fit. We were going over what is working and what is not working and how do we figure out what to do more of and what to do less of and how do we actually do break out the set of prospects that we're going after into different kinds of cohorts so that we can identify the ones where we're getting more tractions versus those that are not. I think it's really important and I know this, this is a trite saying, but the sort of working in the business and working on the business, in the same yeah. way you can say working in the problem and working on the problem. And I think it's always critical to have that level of objectivity and distance from it so that you say, okay, rather than just go out and chase a bunch of things and, and experience them and not really know which ones are working, which ones aren't, actually figure out some ways of measuring what you're doing so that you can then take a step back and assess the ones that are working versus those that are not. Huge, huge uh, tip there for everybody. At least that's, that's great. I, I, I completely agree with you. You know, it's, I think we've all, anyone who's been in business has gone through those cycles, right? Um, actually, probably 
the funny one is, I, I mean, I certainly know I, I learn more from my failures and things that aren't working than I do from my successes because it's it's too easy to chalk it up as, geez, I was clever. That was so you know, where it actually could have been market timing that delivered that success. So I think uh, de- dealing with those challenges and understanding how to pull them apart and assess them and and take that sort of impartial view. Um, I guess I guess that's probably where good advisors come in too. You know, I I certainly have had many clients in my time where you're talking through issues with them, and it's not that the client actually doesn't know what you're saying. It's just sometimes they're too close to it to actually recognize patterns or perhaps what the solution might be. Yeah. And I think to your point, that's where an advisor can be super helpful is the pattern recognition, is the providing a different perspective that pulls them out of the problem that they're facing. I I actually run a CEO peer group, a set of different early stage founders. And one of the things that they really value is that they're normally in the business every day, day in, day out. And when we have this one and a half hour call once a month with other CEOs who are similarly in their stuff, it gives them all the license to pull back and say, okay, what's going on with my business? And a staple of our agenda is a challenge. So out of the six in any given session, two people will present a challenge. And what they're doing is bringing forward a challenge to hear what others think about this particular issue. And it's very, no pun intended, challenging to to have a challenge in your business and just be spinning around it yourself or with your team. And so back to your point about advisors, that's where I think an advisor can be really helpful is pulling you out of the weeds and allowing you to get perspective on whatever issue that you're facing, whether it be an advisor such as you or the type of work that I do with companies or whether it be a CEO peer group, just individuals that are smart, informed and care enough to give you a perspective. Yeah, and, I, and I, I'll underscore the care component there, right? It's, um, it's funny, I think when you get a, you get, any kind of people in a room that have got some smarts about them, um, you know, pe- people can lots of people can solve different problems, but actually, it's their the level of care, the care factor is actually what opens up their own mind to creative solutions, and you know, being able to go into that problem so- solving mode. Um, you know, I think when you you can tell when people are just paying lip service to stuff, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, you need to get that cut through, I think, to really kind of get to the to the to the guts of what what is the problem and how to solve it. So, yeah, completely. So let's let's fast forward a little bit. Um, I know we're going to chat a little bit about three hundred and sixty PI, and I, I definitely want to jump into a little bit about the transaction. But maybe just to start with, could could you give us an overview of what three hundred and sixty PI was and what it, what it did? Yeah, sure. We were a market intelligence firm. We essentially pulled in information about products that were being sold through e-commerce retailers and sold that intelligence to retailers and manufacturers to help them to better plan out their pricing and get a better perspective on what was happening in the market. We actually, at the time that I took on the company in 2010, now I I mentioned three companies earlier, two of them I actually co-founded. 360PI, I came on as a CEO of a company that was had already been founded, had been running for two, two and a half years, had seven or eight people on the team and was pursuing a B2C strategy. So they were aiming to be a comparison shopping engine 
where you go onto the site, you look up a product, and it shows you the different places you can buy it at what sort of price point. That consumer model, I felt, was challenged from a variety of different perspectives uh, relating to 95% of leads coming from Google. If Google changes its search engine algorithm, you can get completely hosed if you like. And by the way, that did end up happening. Um, but we had already, I'd already said, how do we get more control over the kind of revenues that we can generate? And both of my prior two businesses had been B2B software as a service. So it was very natural for me to look for a B2B SaaS application of what this company was doing. It had a different brand. We ended up rebranding it into 360 PI, ended up focusing from B2C to B2B and ended up getting a large number of large, uh, mostly North American, but some international uh, retailers and, and manufacturers as customers. That's fascinating stuff. I, I, I do really love the market intel side. It's, um, you know, I think too, too often I do see companies that, you know, they're sort of broadly aware that they've got competitors and things that are going on, but it's the, the, the depth of the market intel really isn't there. So I, I can imagine I can see and understand why your, your customers would have, would have enjoyed and appreciated your service so much. Um, I'd love to pick on something you just said a moment ago, though, about that shift you know, B2B, B2C, uh, sorry, B2C onto a B2B model, um, having sold a lot of different companies, different styles, and including SaaS companies. I, I don't know if it's just a trend or, uh, you know, the market or my current situation sort of reinforcing my own thinking here, but it, it seems to me that there's a lot more interest from investors out there for B2B models than there are B2C. It, I don't know. Is that just me confirming my own thinking here? Or is that what's been your experience around that? I think that there's a lot more variability around the B2C, and I think there's a lot more predictability around the B2B. And so I think that we become very, those of us who are in B2B, we can't imagine doing it another way because it just seems like a more reliable way of building your business. To me, B2C is a little bit like selling scripts in Hollywood or trying to land an acting role. Uh, it's a, it's very lucrative if you happen to do it very, very well and you execute very, very well and you get exactly the right sort of positioning. But the probability of you are doing that is very low. So I think overall, I kind of think of it from an expected value perspective, which is what is the potential upside? What is the probability? And it just seems like the best risk-adjusted approach is to go after a B2B business. But there are some exceedingly successful B2C businesses, and one in particular that was in the market intelligence space, for example, was a company called Honey that you may be aware of that was acquired for $4 billion by eBay in, I believe it was early 21 or 22. So there are ones that if you hit it and you hit it right, you can hit it out of the park. Yeah, but yeah. If you're going in saying what's what's the the greatest likelihood of my being able to get a good return on my business, then you're probably going down the B two B route. Yeah, yeah. It's really it's it is fascinating. I um I say I've just just seen lots of examples of of well, and I I feel like every every second PE person that contacts me is asking me about B two B services. <laughs> so. Yeah, I guess it's it's a good lesson for those uh, thinking about selling their businesses one day is 
you know, if you put yourself in the buyer's shoes, they're looking for how to mitigate risk, looking for that reliability, that consistency, what's the model, can I grow it? So, yeah, I guess it's always that balance between risk and opportunity, right? Yeah, and I think to your point, a lot of PE firms are, it actually fits really well with their model and their approach. A lot of PE firms are looking to acquire a certain a certain multiple of EBITDA, do some value creation, and then sell at another multiple of EBITDA. And so predictability really plays to the way that they operate. And, and that's why I would think that there would be more attraction for B2B SaaS businesses. Yeah, yeah. Um, coming back to 360, um, so you took over, I think you said in 2010, what did the journey look like? How long were you involved in um, 360 PI? And, and at what point in that journey did you start thinking about potentially selling? So we ran from 2000, at least, sorry, uh, the company, again, was founded in sort of 2007 or 2008. Uh, I was there from 2010 to 2017. We were acquired in April of 2017. In terms of when did we start thinking about selling, it's, it's actually interesting. I think you need to look at, and this, of course, depends on the situation. In our case, we actually had a company that had incubated this, the, the company that I was running, and had spun it out. And so they were shareholders okay. and they were on the board. And we raised venture capital money, and then we had a VC on the board. So I had a board where... I definitely had equity and a decent amount of equity in the company, but I wasn't the sole owner, the sole proprietor. I didn't own 85% of the company. And as a result, I was always managing the different interests of the shareholders in terms of what they wanted. And in, in this case, they were somewhat divergent. You had the original, the, the representatives of the original founding company had been with it for longer than any of the rest of us. And they, I would say, would have been okay taking a sale at any point. They wanted to see a return on the investment that they had made. The VC, of course, doesn't get involved unless they're looking for an outsized return. And so they wanted to give us the, the, the rope, if you like, to, you know, to see what we could actually do. They had actually been very fortunate. They had, they had, invested in a similar company in our space that got sort of a lottery win type of acquisition uh, after a very brief period of time. And so they were reinvesting by investing in us. When we actually ended up selling was a point where it was apparent that we were going to do another, I wouldn't call it pivot. The first one was definitely a pivot from B2C to B2B, but we were going to be doing a a slight course adjustment by increasing our focus from retailers to manufacturers. And I think at that point, they felt that it was enough of a strategic difference that we should explore the market for the company. How did you feel about it personally? Were you, were you ready to exit at that point? Great question, Simon. I was, at the end of the day, I really wanted to build a great company and I would have been prepared to go further, but I would have wanted more equity. And I think that at that point, it just became, 
a confluence of the different interests that said, you know what, given what the initial shareholder wants, where the VC is at in terms of their fund and their life cycle, what my expectations would have been, the team and, and so on, it just became a propitious juncture to look at a sale for the company. So I, I ended up being fine with it. I I would have been prepared to go longer, but I would have expected more. And it ended up being an absolutely good time for us to to exit. Yeah, yeah. yeah interesting. Um, one of the things that I get asked a lot is what is the best time to sell? And and I, I guess if we extrapolate that broadly across any kind of company, or certainly the the you know, from your experience, do you have do you have a view on that? Just generally speaking, that's a great question. I think you you made a really good point early on about business is a vehicle for our own personal interests and desires. So I think the number one thing you want to look at is what do you want personally from your life? Are you have you been running your business for? 20 years and you're 45 or 50 and you want to take some time off and spend it with your kids while they're still growing? Uh, are you, have you been running it for 40 years and you're 65 or 70 and you really want to cash in and just travel the world? Where are you at as an owner in terms of your life cycle? So that's the number one consideration. I would say the number two consideration is to consider headwinds and tailwinds. And I speak now as someone who, following the acquisition of 360PI, served as the head of M&A, merger integration and partnerships alliances at the acquiring company, which itself was owned by a very large U.S. private equity outfit. And so I looked at a lot of companies for acquisition. And, and so what I mean by headwinds and tailwinds is, for example, right now, there's a lot in the world, there's a lot of discussion about inflation. And, and the markets were a lot headier a year and a half or two years ago than they are right now. So there are tailwinds right now in terms of the multiples that are going to be offered on companies and even, frankly, when their acquisitions are even happening. As a owner, if your plan was to sell at this time, you may want to consider whether you continue to want to sell at this time or whether you're willing to defer for another year or two until economic conditions hopefully improve. And there's no guarantee of that. And you may end up getting better multiples. Another example is climate tech is an area that I have a fair amount of interest in and that I've developed an interest in following my, my exit. And there is a lot of money going into climate tech right now. So that would be a tailwind. And if you have the opportunity to sell a business in climate tech, notwithstanding the broader economic conditions, you may actually do very well in selling a climate tech business. So I think number one, again, you look at what is your personal situation. Number two is you look at headwinds and tailwinds. If I were to put in number three, I'd say, how prepared are you? I think you and I discussed this a little bit, which is, are you ready to sell? Have you put the appropriate steps in place to achieve a desirable exit at the kind of timing that you want. Yeah, I, that's brilliant, Alex. I, I, and I 100% agree with you. You know, that personal objective, headwinds, tailwinds, what's going on in that broader macro environment? Because at the end of the day, we're all pretty small boats in a very large ocean. 
um, and then what's kind of going on in your market and then right down into even your company you know, right. and your, your exit readiness, if you will. Um, you know, are, are you actually geared to go through a transaction? And it's, it's, it's an interesting one. That, that last point too is, is something that I, I certainly see people don't, you know, general business people out there, you know, they're great at what they do. They build a fantastic widget. They're great at selling it, whatever, but they perhaps have never been through a transaction. And so they don't know what's involved. Um, and I have certainly had plenty of clients over the years that I get the call and it's, you know, they've been wanting to probably get out for a while and something has happened and now they're just done. You know, I, I, you know, and I get that, Simon, I'm ready to sell. And you kind of look under the hood and realize that <laughs> while they've made a decision that they're ready to sell, that the business is not ready. Yeah. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's a fascinating one. Do, do you see much of that? I mean, you're, I, I, from what I can see from your profile, you're kind of doing a lot of angel investing and you're kind of earlier stage stuff. Um, I, I sort of feel like it's a different mentality for people who are doing the startup and, and the early stage accelerators these days because it's, I don't know, there's a different mindset to it. You know, they kind of almost thinking exit much earlier on because that's the payday, right? It's not a, I've inherited my family's company and it's been running for 50 years. <laughs> Do you see that kind of difference in mindsets or? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question, Simon. So Yes and no. I do think that there are some who think about exit early on. But honestly, if you're thinking about exit when you were starting up a company and you're in the very early stages, then I don't think you've actually got your focus in the right place. I think to be successful in a business, my experience tells me you have to be really passionate about the problem that you're solving. And thinking about an exit is like you're thinking with the left part of your brain rather than the right part of your brain. And so I don't think it is actually ideal. And if I see an early stage founder who comes to me and has already got an overly elaborate sort of exit plan or thought around exit, I'm actually less interested in the business because it means that they're actually thinking it from a dollars and cents rather than a pure passion. And you mentioned earlier on an excellent point around purpose and pursuing your purpose. Now, I don't mean pursue a passion to the detriment of actually being thoughtful and working out the financials and unit economics of your business. But I do mean do with your head on, but make sure your heart is in it. Whereas the other type of business that you were talking about, which is maybe that you've inherited it, or maybe it's something you started a number of years ago. You can also be very passionate about that, obviously, but you've also lived with it for quite a while. And yeah. you might have a little bit more, maybe not distance, but maybe you can achieve a greater level of objectivity around it. I think it's very, very important to recognize that a business is not your partner. It is an asset. And you want to treat it like an asset. And to your point, as much as you may enjoy the business and enjoy the people and enjoy the problems you're solving, you don't want to lose yourself in it. And, and that's where you, you keep yourself objective. You work on the business and not only work in the business. And part of that is what you said, which is planning to always be, well, planning out your, your exit for the longer term and always being transaction ready. Because if somebody comes along and to your point, the founder says, oh, I'm ready to go now. Well, I can't tell you how many times I get an early stage founder who calls me and says, 
oh, somebody called me about M&A and, and they're sort of excited. And, and it's just like every single time, because I've been through this myself, I am not in any way judging them. I've been through this myself where you get that initial you know, adrenaline rush and you think that they're going to offer you tons of money for your company. And then you realize that they're just kicking the tires and they just want to learn more about what you're doing. And right, frankly, there's no chance that they're actually thinking about acquiring. In fact, it's probably like a ploy on their side to learn more about your company. And meanwhile, you're, you're spending tons of cycles and giving them information and so on. So you want to be transaction ready. You want to be planned. You want to be methodical about the whole process. Yeah, I, I I love that you you've brought that up because I, <laughs> that whole rush of adrenaline it's a massive ego stroke, right? Like, oh, and whether you're early stage or yeah, you're later in the later in your business journey, I, I think people do get caught up in it. And it's not to say people are egocentric. You can't. I think as humans, you can't help but feel a little bit kind of chuffed, shall I say, that somebody's tapped you on the shoulder and is showing interest in and acquiring you. Um, but I think, Alex, what you've done there too is highlighted one of the big risks we see out there is that you get caught up in that moment and don't realise that there are often some very, very smart people on the other side of this discussion and negotiation who've done many, many transactions and they can sometimes not be as upfront and transparent as what you'd like. And you know, it's not saying that they're not interested in your business, but they might be interested in it for other reasons. Um, you know, they may be interested in acquiring you, but that might be a pretty soft level of interest because they're really looking for other information. Um, you know, I can't, I couldn't tell you how many clients we've ended up having come on board with us, or we've ended up selling their business because they went down the path with the buyer who tapped them on the shoulder, and they spent nine, even twelve months, sometimes engaging, sharing all this super confidential information only to either be lowballed at the end because, you know, the buyers can see that they're already mentally spending the money, they're committed and, you know, they just want to get the deal done. Deal fatigue is set in. Um, or, and I've seen this one happen a lot too, the big large corporate buyer who's looking at your business has suddenly had a change of strategy or a new CEO has come in and said, we're freezing all acquisitions for the next 18 months. And so the deal just dies overnight. <laughs> And so, you know, poor old business owner standing here who's poured their heart and soul into all this and has spent so much time on this deal now instead of doing their core job and keeping their numbers going where they should, um, you know, started spending the money and getting excited and planning a holiday with their, their wife or husband, <laughs> now finds their dreams are shattered and, you know, they realise how much resource has just been flushed down the toilet. So it's, it's yeah, it's a pretty, it's harsh, but, but that sort of stuff seems to be happening so often out there. Yeah, I think to your point, that is absolutely a reality. I think the it happens, I think, more in this kind of environment than the environment we had a year and a half ago. And yep. there is absolutely, this was an excellent point on your part, the people that you are playing ball with are pros. Yeah. You are an amateur. You may be a professional at your business but you are an amateur at M&A and these people are the pros and they are excellent at making you feel valued and loved and wanted and they are sharks. And, and, and I don't mean that, let, let me not, sorry. I don't want to actually portray every single acquirer out there as 
you know, a, a person you need to be concerned about their ethics. I mean, I think in our case, you brought up a really good point about, you know, the amount of time it takes because it does take a ton of time and you've got to keep the metrics going. Uh, in our case, we were actually, 360PI was acquired by a competitor. And so we really were very sensitive to the information that we were releasing. And so what we did was we actually staged the disclosures so that we were only releasing what I felt was the minimum necessary to give the buyer comfort for us to continue the transaction. And we did that at every stage. So our due diligence process was actually relatively short. It actually only lasted five, you know, five and a half weeks or so. And part of that was because the competitor knew us in the market. Part of it was the founder, the CEO of the company knew me and had a sense as to who I was as an individual, which by the way, is all very important in terms of that planning that we talk about is getting to know the other parties. And, and, and because they had that additional context on us as a competitor in the market, I was able to set it up so that we were parceling out information over the five and a half week period where the very, very confidential information was left till the very end. And, and it worked for them. They understood where we were coming from. And from my perspective, I was protecting the interests of our company and our, and our team, frankly, and our investors, where if I saw any yellow or red flags along the path, I always had the option of saying, well, let's, let's pull back here. Right. So I think that's very critical in the, in the process. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I presume from your perspective, it's a matter of by doing it in a staged way, the buyers are, of course, investing more time, more money, resources, energy, et cetera, into this deal. So fundamentally becoming more and more committed to the outcome as well. Is, is that a fair comment? Yeah, that's exactly the, that was exactly the purpose of doing it that way. I mean, we do all have this concept of sunk cost, but what you want them is sinking more cost in as you move along. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, yeah, and no, it's a great principle. Um, Quick question around because because you were a, a tech company and and no doubt you've got code and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, I've I've had clients who get quite concerned about where and when and how to potentially share stuff like that because buyers do want to verify certain elements of that and yet some of it is you know the the, the question that comes up a lot. So I guess I'll pose this and I'm curious about how you handle this, but. Is certain elements of code perhaps only accessible after a deal is signed and there's a perhaps a short window? Do, do, do buyers, in your experience, insist on seeing it before they'll sign the contract? Like, what happens at that kind of real pointy end there? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I can tell you in our case, and I can let me abstract first and say and generalize and say that I think this is deal dependent very dependent on the buyer and the seller and how much the buyer wants the seller. Sorry, how much the seller wants? To, yeah, how much the buyer wants the seller? Yes, I got that right. So the more the buyer wants the seller, the more they're willing to compromise. The more the seller needs to sell, the more the buyer can extract in terms of those conditions. In our particular case, we were a desired asset 
we did not need to share code, but I will say that absolutely critical to that entire process was a test that we ran about midway through where we ran it through using our software and they ran it through using their software and we gave them the results. And I knew, and our CTO was working very closely with me on this, I knew that whatever the results of that were, were going to be fundamental to how this deal proceeded. And as it turned out, we did extremely well on that to the point where they, I remember their CTO saying something like, to the effect of, I can't even understand how they got this. Right? <laughs> and, and that was a, a great sign. You know, when, when I literally, when we passed that test midway through, I said, okay, you know what? Everything's going to be fine from this point on. Yeah, yeah. God, was there a little part of your brain that was sort of thinking, should we add a couple of points to the multiple here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? <laughs> Yeah, no, but that, what a great outcome. I love, I love that idea of running a test with comparative software. And I guess if, you, if your buyer, as, as in your case, is a competitor, they're in the space, they're doing stuff. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a wonderful solution. Um, and, and to your previous point as well about it being deal dependent, I 100% agree. You know, it's, I, I've, got, I've seen and been involved in deals where um, buyers are insisting on seeing certain aspects um, before they'll sign an agreement. And, you know, this is this one little contentious issue, you know, because obviously, you know, sellers don't want to reveal anything that could be damaging to them. Um, we've, we've seen it done in so many different little ways, but, um, you know, a black box is a, a, a term that some people listening to this might be familiar with, where we've actually said, you can look at certain and test certain parts of the system and, and the code, but certain parts of it, you're not going to look at until you've signed a deal but this, it, it'll be what we call a condition precedent, right, or a CP. So you sign the deal on the assumption that everything's going to work the way we've told you it'll work, and you get a short window in a very controlled environment, um, often sitting at, like, come into an office, sit at a terminal, you'll be supervised, you get to look at something, and if it ticks the box at that point, the deal proceeds in a week after that or 10 days, whatever it might have been. Um, so that, that was, a, I've seen that work in a really, I've seen it work well, um, and and I think work well because everybody came at it was being very transparent and honest about what they each party should get out of the transaction, and so you know went smoothly. Yeah, and I think a variant a variant of that, Simon, uh, to your point, I think that is a great solution. But a variant of that is to even have a third party actually be the person who looks at the code. So you have a DMZ, and rather than the buyer being the one who's actually taking a look at the code, you actually have this third party that's neutral, they actually follow criteria set out by the buyer, they assess the code and they provide some sort of feedback. So there's always ways yeah. that you can skin it. I do want to come back to something about sort of the, how much the buyer wants the seller and how much the seller wants the buyer, because there was another case of a company that I was working with and they're working, there's a larger company in their industry who's made a number of acquisitions. We couldn't even get to agreement on the NDA. Oh wow! And yeah. and for the company that I was representing, and I, I don't want to. I'm not in your. I don't have your function, but I was at least advising them and helping them along. They just felt that they they weren't especially keen on this larger company, and when when they felt that this larger company was being intractable and one sided about their NDA, 
it just left them with a, if I, you know, if I use the scientific term, ick, a feeling of ick, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and they, they just kind of came to the conclusion, we don't actually want to go further because if, if it's going to be so challenging to work with them on this NDA, and we already don't have a great impression of them, where is this going to end up? Yeah, yeah. Do you know, I have a far more crude expression that I hear kicked around <laughs> a little bit, um, <laughs> is that uh, if it smells at the beginning, it'll stink at the end. And right. <laughs> exactly. I, yeah, right. And so I think, and I think, you know, so many guests on this, this podcast have said things to that effect in terms of, geez, you know, you really got to trust your gut a little bit. And if your gut's telling you this doesn't feel right, then you should be listening to that. And certainly you should be exploring it. It's not to say that, hey, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't mean that the deal's dead or you shouldn't keep pursuing things, but you've got to probably step back from your current thinking or try to understand if you've got blinkers on or perhaps you need an external party to come in and start taking a look at things and questioning it in a different way. But but don't ignore that feeling, I think, is is the takeaway I want people to get here. Yeah, no, completely agreed. I know of another company, by the way, that was selling to a competitor in their industry and and unfortunately, I was speaking with the CEO after this had transpired, but or at the very end, tail end of the process. But they had disclosed a ton of information, had been doing this sort of due diligence process for a number of months. And I remember as he described it to me, I just thought, ooh, this sounds like the conditions are in place for them to pull out. There was they they hadn't they hadn't been prudent and cautious enough about the way they disclose the information, the way that we described and doing it collectively over time and drawing them in further. And as a result, and I, I only spoke to them at the tail end of this process, but I found out a few weeks later that they did in fact pull out and were likely using the information against them. So, oh, dear. Yeah. yeah, I mean, one, and, and I, I think that the CEO probably had an inkling that that was a possibility, but, he, you know, he, he just didn't know how to do better, frankly. Yeah. 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 No, it's a, it's a fair comment. That's like, like we were saying before, right? Yeah. You're playing with the pros, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And you're, you're walking this, uh, this, this jungle track for the first time. So, you know, it's, um, of course the natives are going to run rings around you. <laughs> yeah. so. And they'll ask you for, for whatever they want. And frankly, it's yeah. on you to know what's reasonable to say, to say no to. And sometimes that's where it helps to actually have a perspective such as the one that you provide to say, well, we don't think that's reasonable based upon the number of other situations that we've seen like this. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, if that's really important to you, let's look at a different solution to help you get what you want when you need it and when it's appropriate. So, Yeah, and, and yeah. in some cases, you know, help me understand why that's so important to you. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, actually question it. Um Little cognizant of time, Alex, because I could talk, I could talk to you all day. But with, with your deal on, on three hundred and sixty PI, I don't know if you can share um, the actual valuation, but could, can you share with us the methodology that they used to come up with the number? Like, was it a multiple of EBITDA? Was it a multiple of revenue? Like, can you share what that multiple might have been? Yeah, so they were owned by a private equity firm, and they were in the midst of being acquired by another private equity firm. So it was all private equity based. <laughs> And yep. it was definitely a multiple of some form uh, based on either revenue. It was based on revenues in our case. Uh, we were operationally break even. We weren't profitable. So obviously, if you're multiplying by zero, you're getting a, a zero. So 
but it was a, a multiple of, of revenue. Uh, the company was in the mid seven figures. The acquisition was in the eight figures. Uh, it was reasonable. It wasn't extravagant at the time. I will say that, again, and this is, goes back to tailwinds and headwinds, if you actually track whether it's public company multiples and private company multiples often follow public company multiples, and you see where they were sort of 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, and so on, then anyone who sold in sort of 2021 timeframe would have done better with the same business than if they had sold in 2017 or 2022 for that matter. So I think it was a reasonable uh, and good outcome for where we were at the time. Uh, but there's no point in our envying the people who sold a few years later in 2021. It's, it's, a, it's a good point, though, in terms of, um, well, there's a lot of things there talking about environment and market and how that impacts value. Um, I had a prospective client asking me yesterday, and they've got a a, um, a tech-enabled business. It's not their tech, but it's interesting sort of business. And um, they were asking me, you know, we've done all the hard work and it's now just becoming profitable. Is there value here? You know, do you th- is it actually even saleable? And I was saying to them, well, it is, absolutely. You don't, not every business has to be profitable to have actually created an enormous amount of value. And typically I think buyers also, um, the buyers of those style of businesses know that it's a it's almost the pre-made model, right? All we need to do is add water. In other words, our resources and skills and and market sort of penetrational presence, and and hey, this thing will, will you know, presto, will will blow up and grow quite significantly and potentially quite quickly. Um, so yeah, I guess a, a good message to anybody listening out there that it's um, you know, there are a lot of rules of thumb and metrics and stuff that get thrown around in general conversations, but but I think you've got to look at your own situation. Look at your own business. What problem are you solving? How scalable is it? You know, there's so many variables here. It's 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 really down to those conditions around you and your business. Yeah, and I've seen a couple of acquisitions. One that was at sort of ten times revenue. Another one that was sort of uh, in the fifty times revenue range, where wow. where the the acquiring company. To to your point, you're not always acquiring just for the numbers. Sometimes you're acquiring for the culture change that you're trying to create in the larger company or the new product entry that you are looking for or the new market entry. There's a variety. And and so I think as as a business that's selling, absolutely look at the numbers, but consider what else might be attractive and of value in your business to your potential acquirers. Yeah, great advice. Great advice. Um, Alex, we've only got a couple of minutes left here. Um, I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're doing these days. What are you working on? You know, I know you've touched on a little bit about angel investing and stuff like that, but um, yeah, do you want to just expand on that a little bit for us? Sure. Uh, so I left the the company that acquired, again, 360PI at the end of 2019. And by the way, I got some incredibly well-timed world travel in before COVID hit. So I'm very grateful for that. But since the beginning of 2020, I've been angel investing in and advising early stage companies. As I mentioned, I run a CEO peer group. Uh, and I would say I'm not done on the entrepreneurial side. I continue to explore uh, potential entrepreneurial ventures. I've obviously acquired a fair amount of experience and I've advised a number of different companies. And so I've seen a lot of patterns and I've experienced a lot of them myself and I've seen it in the companies that I work with. So I'd like to think that I would uh, be even more successful in a future entrepreneurial uh, endeavor. Uh, 
I'm also considering the possibility of creating a fund for investment. So going beyond angel investment and, and really taking it up another level to invest in other companies. Uh, very cool. Very cool. Um, well, I'd love to hear more about that fund if you uh, continue down that path. And certainly I think anybody listening who um, wants that that support, you're perhaps in a B2B or SaaS company or a big data company or anything like that, that's, you know, you want that kind of one-on-one support or, you know, I'm sh- sure you could reach out to Alex. Um, in fact, Alex, that's a good question. I mean, are you happy for me to reach out? And where would be the best way to, what's the best way to reach out to you? Yeah, I have a website at rinkventures.com and have a number of different blog posts, uh, including, for example, around how to actually think about selling your company and the timing to put in place and the steps and, and so on, which, by the way, you'll be happy to know includes make sure you engage the right advisor. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and the other way directly is they can email me at alex at rinkventures.com. Awesome. Awesome. I'm going to put those links in the show notes. Um, Alex, if I can ask you one more question before we wrap up. Um, it's one I've been asking a lot of different founders lately, but I, I'm interested in how you personally define success. You know, the best definition that I've heard is the progressive realization of a worthy goal. And so for me, success is not monetary though that is a part of it, it is that I am doing something worthwhile, meaningful, and purposeful for myself, my family, and ultimately the world. And that, I think if I do that, then I, then I feel successful. I love it. It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. It, um, Alex, I've really enjoyed having you on the show here. It's, um, as I said, I, I think I could chat to you all day, but uh, <laughs> appreciate you uh, making the time. So, yeah, thank, thanks again. Yeah, and, and thank you, Simon. And I think what you're doing is a, a great service to entrepreneurs. And I think it, uh, it's always useful to hear other people's stories and gain perspective from them. So congratulations on spreading them. Appreciate it very much, Alex. Thanks again. And thank you all for listening to this episode. I hope you got as much value out of it as I did. Um, And we look forward to having you again next week. That's the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Thanks for joining. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Wherever you are on your business journey, it's worth understanding what is driving value into your business and what could be holding you back. For more information, speak to the team at Exit Advisory Group by going to exitadvisory.com.au or send an email to ask at exitadvisory.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.